Why would you bet on Goliath when we got bet David? Value taming, giving values contagious. This world of entrepreneurs, we get no value to haters. How they run, homie? Look what I become. I'm Patrick Bedevi, host of ITM, and today we got a special debate going on. It's a debate around vaccine. This may be the first ever vaccine debate that was recorded live, and this one's with Robert Kennedy Jr. and Alan Dershowitz. It's pretty much two attorneys going at it. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being a guest on ITM and agreeing to do this debate. Thank you for having us, Patrick. Yeah, thank you. So, so first thing I want to do is I'm going to share my screen, and I'm going to. Uh, I want the audience to see what led us here, a comment that you made on a podcast you did, and then I'll go from there asking your thoughts on it. So here's what was said in an interview a few weeks ago by Alan. Let's show a clip of this. Let me put it very clearly. You have no constitutional right to endanger the public and spread a disease, even if you disagree. You have no right not to be vaccinated. You have no right not to wear a mask. You have no right to open up your business. Wait, can I stop you? No right not to be vaccinated? Meaning if they decide you have to be vaccinated, we have to be vaccinated? Absolutely. And if you refuse to be vaccinated, the state has the power to literally take you to a doctor's office and plunge a needle into your arm. If the vaccination is to prevent, if the vaccination is designed to prevent the spreading disease, if the vaccination is only to prevent a disease that you will get. For example, if there's a disease that will kill you, you have the right to refuse that, but you have no right to refuse to be vaccinated against a uh, contagious disease. Public health, the police power of the Constitution, gives the state the power to compel that, and there are cases in the United States Supreme Court. So now that interview goes for a while, so let me bring you back to us here. Uh, Alan, those are some strong statements you made. Obviously, his reaction, a lot of people's reactions. Has your position changed since making those statements on that interview? The statements I made on the interview were professional statements based on reading Supreme Court cases, not expressing personal views. They were, uh, I have strong personal views, but uh, my constitutional views haven't changed at all. Um, Let me be very clear. I don't think this issue is going to come up in the near uh, future because right now the New York Times has a big story today uh, in which they talk about uh, how there's going to be a limited number of vaccines and people are going to be waiting online to get them. So the issue uh, is not going to be confronted uh, as to mandatory vaccines. You know, having said that, I want to just pause for one second and say how important this debate is and how privileged I am to participate in it with so distinguished uh, a conversationalist as uh, Robert Kennedy. Um, I, I of course, knew his father. Uh, I had actually been offered a job to work with his father when he was attorney general, but Harvard offered me a job and I decided to take it. I was a great fan of Senator Robert Kennedy, Attorney General Robert Kennedy, and I think I consider myself a friend of the Kennedy family, and I consider myself a friend of Robert Kennedy, I admire enormously the environmental work he's done, and I think he's performed an important function by raising issues about uh, vaccination. We, as you'll see in this conversation, will disagree. We'll probably agree on more things than people will be will be surprised at our level of agreement. 
But on the issue of constitutionality, I am confident that uh, this Supreme Court would follow a uh, Supreme Court president, president from 1905 and would say, if there is a safe, and that's crucially important, effective measure that could significantly reduce the contagious impact of a deadly disease like uh, the current pandemic virus, that the state would have the power to either directly compel vaccination or, for example, condition young students coming to school on being vaccinated or people doing other things that might result in contagion being vaccinated. So, no, I haven't changed my professional constitutional opinion, but uh, as, as Robert will tell you, we've had conversations offline, and he has persuaded me uh, about a number of things relating to the health and safety and efficacy of vaccines. So I've learned a lot from our conversations, and I hope people will learn something from our conversations today. But the constitutional issue, in my mind, remains the same. So, so it's important to unpack that constitutionally, you're remaining same position to say, if the government wanted to mandate and make us take a vaccine, we can't say anything to it. That position is not changing. That's right. As long as the okay. vaccination is safe and effective, uh, an example, if you have somebody who has unique uh, uh, vulnerability to vaccinations, uh, that person might get a medical exemption. The issue of religious exemption um, is something the courts have considered uh, most recently. The Supreme Court did, just in the last day or two, create religious exemptions for um, private schools, religious schools, in terms of whether employment laws uh, operate on religious schools. So uh, we would have to see what the court would say about religious exemptions. But as a general matter, a healthy person who simply has an ideological objection to vaccinations as such, not to this particular vaccination because of health reasons or vulnerability, the Supreme Court would, I predict, hold that the state could in one way or another compel vaccination either directly or as a condition of people engaging in public activities or activities that could create contagion. Yeah, that's my position. Well, that, that's very important to know because there's your personal beliefs, which is completely different than what mm -hmm. you think will be able to be mandated. So having said that, Robert, I know you've seen this before and uh, uh, you've seen uh, when the statement was made. And in one case, uh, uh, Alan even said he'd be willing to debate Robert Kennedy on this topic, which kind of led to us wanting to do this debate. What was your initial reaction of watching what Alan said and what has changed since you and him have had calls together offline? Well, I want to begin by thanking Alan for participating in this debate. And by the way, Patrick, you're familiar, and Alan's familiar with my voice. I want to apologize for that at the outset. It's really bad in the morning, and Alan could only do this in the morning, but hopefully it'll get better as we, uh, as we proceed. I want to thank Alan for participating in this debate. I've actually been trying to do a debate on this issue for 15 years. Um, I've asked Peter Hotez, I've asked Paul Offit, I've asked all of the major leaders of, um, who are promoting vaccines to debate me, and none of them have. And I think it's really important for our democracy to, have, to be able to have spirited civil discussions 
about important issues. Like this, this is an issue that has been on the news 24 hours a day for the last four months. And yet there's no debate happening about this. It's all kind of a, a repetition of these government orthodoxies and government proclamations. And democracy functions only when we have the free flow of information. Policy is best often crafted in the furnace of heated, spirited debate. It's part of our constitutional system. It's part of Americans' tradition. We invented free speech in this country through the First Amendment. And it ought to be something that we celebrate and that we model for the world. It shouldn't be something where you now have Democratic leaders like Adam Schiff calling on social media sites to censor debate about an important government issue. That shouldn't happen. So I'm very grateful to Alan, who I know loves the First Amendment, for actually agreeing to debate on an issue at which he's at a disadvantage because I've spent 15 years working on this issue. I'm at a big disadvantage for him to him when it comes to talking about constitutional law. And I'm going to try to keep a lot of this debate on my side of the issue to put him at a disadvantage. <laughs> oh, let me start out by saying I don't agree with Alan's Initial, and this is a very small disagreement because Alan and I have talked a lot offline, and I think we've come to a place where we really believe this, has, this is going to be a conversation, not a debate, because I think on most of the issues, we are in agreement. And he made the qualifiers when he came up, and he said, if it's safe, if it's effective. And I think those are the big ifs. That's the playground where this debate is really happening. And I think in the end, he and I would end up in the same place in that debate. I will make a minor dispute, which is the Jacobson case, which was decided in 1905, was not a case where the state was claiming the power to go into somebody's home and plunge a needle into their arm or kick down their door and take them by force. The, um, the Jacobson actually was a guy who was resisting taking a smallpox vaccine. He was from Cambridge, Massachusetts. And the penalty for not taking the vaccine was a $5 fine. So it was like a traffic ticket. He decided to take it. He had been injured in a, a previous vaccine, so he didn't want to take this one. He took the case to the Supreme Court. He lost. And the remedy was he paid a $5 fine. So I think it's a big, there's a big, there's a, there's a big constitutional chasm um, between, you know, that remedy, which is paying a fine and actually going in and holding somebody down and forcibly injecting them. And I, I don't, I'm not convinced that the Supreme Court of the United States at this point would, would, um, would uphold that kind of law, nine to zero or eight to one at all. So let me just say that. Uh, let me now go to the, the, the initial place where I think we're in agreement. I think Alan and I are both in agreement that this should be a voluntary program. That if there's mandates, they should be as an ultimate, final, dramatic, drastic remedy. And that really, and, and the question is, why can't we do a voluntary program? 
when Alan and I were kids, you know, people wanted to get vaccinated. There was no fear of the statement of polio vaccines, and people had a tremendous trust in our health regulatory officials. And today, that trust has evaporated to the extent where now 50% of the people who are polled in this country are saying they may not take the COVID vaccine, and 27% are hard no. This is even before the vaccine is developed. Why is that happening? And that's the question I think we really have to ask ourselves. Why do so many Americans no longer trust our regulatory officials and trust this process? And one of the reasons is, you know, vaccines are a very, very interesting and and very different kind of, of medical prerogative because it is a, it's a remedy that is being, it's a medical intervention that is being given to perfectly healthy people to prevent somebody else from getting sick. And it's the only medicine that is given to healthy people. So you would want, and particularly to children who have a whole lifetime in front of them, so you would expect that we would want that particular intervention to have particularly rigorous guarantees that it's safe. Because you're saying to somebody, we are going to make you make this sacrifice for the greater good. You have no health problems. You have zero risk of this disease. Yet we are going to force you to undergo a medical intervention. And our side of the bargain should be, oh, we want this to be completely safe. In fact, what we know about vaccines, and this is from HHS's own studies, a, a, uh, a 2010 study by the Agency for Healthcare Research, that was commissioned to look at vaccine injury because CDC for many years had been saying vaccine injury only occurs one in a million. But what AHRQ found, which is a federal agency, they looked at one HMO, which was the Harvard Pilgrim HMO, and they did a machine cluster analysis, in other words, artificial intelligence counting, a very, very accurate counting system. And they said the actual rate of vaccine injury is 2.6%. That means one in 40 people get seriously injured by vaccines. And do we want to then, do we have a right to say we are going to impose this intervention on people where there's a one in 40 chance that you may get injured in order to, um, in order to protect hypothetical people from catching that particular disease? And for anybody, and this I think is something that Alan really has to, I think, Alan, that you need to come to terms with in terms of crafting your own arguments of this. It's not hypothetical that vaccines cause injury and that injuries are not rare. The vaccine courts have paid out $4 billion and the threshold for getting back into a vaccine court and getting a judgment, HHS admits that fewer than 1% of people who are injured ever even get to court. The other thing is, Vaccines are zero liability. So this is an industry that went to Congress in 1996, and they had a a pertussis vaccine at that time that was called causing brain injury one out of every 300 people. 
And they said to Congress, we cannot make this, we cannot make vaccines safely. They are unavoidably unsafe. That is the phrase in the statute, unavoidably unsafe. The only reason that we're going to continue to make vaccines is if you give us complete blanket immunity from liability. And Congress gave it to them. So today, you have a product that, it, that if it injures you, no matter how negligent the company was, no matter how sloppy the line protocols, no matter how toxic the ingredients they choose to use, no matter how grievous your injury, you cannot sue that company. And that company, therefore, has no incentive to make that product safe. And that should be troubling to any of us who are part of the legal system that is saying we are going to force people to take this intervention. Look, uh, I agree with much of what uh, Robert has said. First of all, I completely agree. The Supreme Court decision in the Jacobson case in 1905 is not binding on the issue of whether or not you can compel somebody to take the vaccine. The logic of the opinion, however, not the holding, the logic of the opinion and subsequent opinions, including some by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, strongly suggest that the courts today would allow some form of compulsion if the conditions that we talked about were met, safe, effective exemptions in appropriate uh, cases. Um, you talked about healthy people being compelled to take a vaccine which is not designed to help them. Of course, it's also designed to help them, but the major function is to make sure that they don't become typhoid Marys and spread the disease to other people. But when you take a vaccine, you also increase the chances that you will not get the terrible, terrible disease. I think you're gonna have to concede, Robert, that um, the smallpox vaccine had an enormous positive impact on wiping smallpox from the face of the earth. Smallpox was a dreaded, dreaded, dreaded disease. The Black Plague back in many, many centuries ago, if there had been a vaccine back then, could have saved probably millions of lives. We don't know what COVID-19 vaccine will look like, but um, on the assumption, and here we have a real argument, on the assumption that it would be effective and would stop the pandemic, and would cause some injury to some people, then you have to ask how the courts would strike the balance. Oliver Wendell Holmes once made an analogy to, uh, in, a, in an unrelated case, to being drafted into the army. Um, when you're a young 18-year-old healthy person, and we have a draft as we had in the Second World War, we don't have it now, but at that point in time, a young 18-year-old was told, look, Congress has given the army complete exemption. We're not liable if you're shot by the Nazis or by the, the Japanese. Um, you have to risk your life in order to protect other innocent people in the country. And it's not a perfect analogy, obviously, but it does show that the courts have given to the government the authority to sometimes make decisions that require you to sacrifice your life. I have to tell you, I don't become personal about this, but I don't think there's any family in the history of America that has ever made more sacrifices in the public interest than the Kennedy family. You know, it broke all of our hearts to see how much 
sacrifice the Kennedy family personally made in order to, uh, particularly Robert Kennedy, who put himself in harm's way so many times on behalf of the civil rights movement. People forget how much he put himself in harm's way on behalf of Israel. You know, he was a great friend of Israel, a great supporter of Israel, and the horrible man who killed him, killed him because he was a Palestinian who hated Bobby Kennedy Sr.'s views. Sacrifice is part of the American uh, tradition, and the Americans owe the Kennedy family an enormous debt of gratitude for their sacrifices. Now, those were voluntary sacrifices. Um, you know, President Kennedy went to Dallas knowing there were risks. Robert Kennedy went to Los Angeles knowing there were risks. By the way, I was working on his campaign the night I was woken up in the middle of the night to learn the horrible, 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 tragic news. Um, uh, and uh, uh, those were voluntary acts. And obviously, we're talking about a very different thing. We're talking about involuntary acts. But being drafted is an involuntary act. Again, uh, to mention the Kennedy family, the oldest brother of the Kennedy family volunteered to serve in the Army and was killed in combat as a great hero. But there were others uh, who uh, didn't volunteer. Many of my own relatives uh, served abroad. So we demand sacrifices, and we don't demand perfection. I think both Robert and I agree that we live in an age, and it's a terrible time that we live in, where everything has become politicized. You mentioned that when we were kids. I remember not being able to swim in the summers of 1953, 4 or 5, because of polio, my friend, uh, died after being on a, uh, a lung uh, machine. And the blessing that we all made to uh, Salk and Sabin for developing uh, the vaccine but there were consequences. People took the vaccine and, and did suffer. In the end, no polio was, was wiped out. And, you know, we live in a very divisive age. Let me mention one other point that I think we should be discussing. Today, the New York Times has a very interesting story about who the vaccine will be offered to. The Times story is not about mandatory. It's about people wanting it. And Robert and I completely agree that the program should begin by giving it only to volunteers. We should only get to this terrible, tragic choice issue in the end if it's absolutely essential that people who don't want to be vaccinated have to be vaccinated to get the kind of herd immunity. We all agree with that. But we live in such a divided time that everything has become politicized. On July 4th, uh, the Reverend uh, Farrakhan made a speech to almost a million people in which he urged uh, black people not to take the vaccine uh, because we know the history of how black people were experimented on during the terrible Tuskegee time. And yet black people and Latino people and people of color are the most vulnerable to the uh, illness. Uh, is that a smart thing for Farrakhan to have urged his community? Um, the, the number of, of people of color who have refused, who have indicated a refusal to take the vaccine is, I think, slightly higher, according to the report, than the number of people not of color who are refusing to take the vaccine. I understand that. I understand the suspicion that our country has generated among people. People don't trust people anymore. Uh, I wrote an article in early March, right in the beginning of this, right at the beginning of this, I wrote an article and the title was, Trust Science, But Be Skeptical of Scientists. And at that point, I pointed to two things that were being argued by scientists, including the World Health Organization, which I generally support, saying, don't wear masks, number one, 
And number two, the COVID-19 is not contagious by air. It has no aerosol contagion. You wrote, wrote that article? article? You wrote that article? No, I wrote the article against it. Against I it. wrote the article saying, don't believe that. Masks work, number one. Uh, if they didn't work, why would so many doctors be using them? And why would it be so necessary for doctors to have them? And second, I don't believe that there's no aerosol transmission. The disease could not have developed so quickly around the world just by touching surfaces. So I challenged the medical establishment on that. And I turned out, of course, as we all know, to be right. We know there's aerosol transmission. We know masks have an impact, whether they help you who are wearing it or whether they only help you in transmitting it. But I, I would like to throw a question out to Robert. I think I know the answer. Robert, would you be against a, a, a law that mandated the wearing of masks in public for everybody, even by people who don't approve of the wearing of masks? You know, masks don't kill you. They're not, they're not, they don't pose the risk that vaccine do, but they do deprive you of freedom. Do you think the state, the government, has the legitimate constitutional power to mandate the wearing of masks by people who refuse to wear masks. Let me come back to that. Let me address some of the other things because I think that's actually a complex question and I think the science is very controversial on that. But let, let me address some of the earlier things that you said first. Um, one is, this is a rather esoteric discussion um, and, and one that you know, I'm not going to really drag you into other than to say this. The proposition and the theology that smallpox and polio were abolished due to vaccination is controversial. That is not a proposition that is universally accepted. And um, if you notice, all the infectious diseases, whether it was scurvy or tuberculosis, for which there were no vaccines, um, along with peripheral fever and diphtheria and pertussis and measles, all disappeared at the same time without vaccination. Now, CDC actually examined that because it became such a part of the orthodoxy of, you know, of vaccines that, that uh, the idea that smallpox and polio were abolished because of vaccines and these other diseases. They did, John Hopkins and the CDC in 2000, did a comprehensive study of that proposition. The study was published in Pediatrics, which is the journal for the American Association of Pediatrics, which is kind of a, a, a readout of fortification for vaccine orthodoxy. So it was a, it's in a publication very, very friendly and supportive of vaccination. The, for people who want to look up this study, it's, um, the lead author is Geyer, G-U-I-E-R. And the conclusion of that study is that the abolishment of mortalities from infectious diseases that took place during the first half of the 20th century had virtually nothing to do with vaccines. It had everything to do with sanitation, with nutrition, with hygiene, with electric refrigerators, with reduction in population densities, and essentially engineering solution, clean water, good food. Um, and that was, uh, and, and, and actually there was a guy called Edward Cass, who was the head of Harvard Medical School at that time, who gave a very, very famous speech 
in which he warned that people who were promoting vaccines and other technologies would try to take credit for those reductions in mortalities from infectious disease. And he said, beware of them because they'll try to monitor that. They'll try to monetize them and use that to increase their power and their prestige. So it's something that you might look at again. It's called Geyer, G-U-I-E-R. Um, I agree with you. There was tremendous faith in vaccination during that period. When you grew up, I grew up, Alan, we had three vaccines, and all of them were deemed as necessary. There were fear diseases. Today's kids have to take 72 vaccines, 72 doses of 16 vaccines in order to stay in school. And that explosion of new vaccination came in 1989, right after the passage of VICA Vaccine Act. The Vaccine Act gave blanket immunity from liability to vaccine companies. And so those companies all of a sudden looked around and they said, holy cow, now we've got a product where we are completely excused from the highest cost from uh, that afflicts every other medical product, which is the downstream liability for injuries. That's the biggest cost for every medicine. Not only that, vaccines have another exemption that most people don't know about. They are the only medical product that does not have to be safety tested against a placebo. And that is that exemption is an artifact of CDC's legacy as a public health service, which was a quasi-military agency, which is why people at the CDC have military ranks like Surgeon General and they wear uniforms. The vaccine program was conceived as a national security defense against biological attacks on our country, and they wanted to make sure that if the Russians attacked us with a biological agent, anthrax or something like that, that we could quickly formulate a vaccine and, and deploy it to 200 million American civilians without regulatory impediments. They said, if we call it a medicine, we're going to have to test it, and that takes five years to do double-blind placebo testing. So let's call it something else. We'll call it a biologic, and we'll exempt biologics from safety testing. So not a single one of the vaccines, the 72 vaccines now administered to our children, have ever been tested against a placebo. And I, in fact, sued HHS in 2016 and said, show me any placebo studies that you have for any vaccines, and they were unable to do so. None of them have been tested. And you don't have to sue them like I did. Anybody can go on their cell phone and look up manufacturer's insert, hepatitis B vaccine, Gardasil vaccine, polio vaccine. Do you know how many days the current polio vaccine, do you know how many days it was safety tested for, Alan? 48 hours. The hepatitis B vaccine, the Glaxo version, was four days. The Merck version, five days. That means that if the baby they gave that to had a seizure on day six, it never happened. If the baby died on day six, it never happened. If the baby got food allergies that were diagnosed two years later, it never happened. If the baby got autism, which is not diagnosed till four years of age, 4.2 years of age, it never happened. 
autoimmune diseases, you cannot see those if you have these short-term studies and you can't see any risk if you don't test against a placebo. And my question is, nobody knows, because of that, nobody knows the risk profile for any vaccine that is currently on the schedule. And that means nobody can say with any scientific certainty that that vaccine is averting more injuries and deaths than it's causing. And my question is, how in the heck can we be mandating to children that they take a medical product for which we do not know the risks? And to me, that is criminal. And, you know, we talked, we started this discussion by talking about how do you avoid the whole discussion about mandating vaccines? The way that you do that is you have a transparent process where people see that the vaccine is going to be tested. They see that it's tested fairly against a placebo, that, um, that it is, there's long-term tests that are going to be able to spot all of these difficulties. And, and that it's transparent and open. And yet, what we've seen from the current group of COVID vaccines is none of that's happening. They're skipping key, key parts of the test. A Moderna vaccine, which is the lead candidate, skipped the animal testing altogether. When they came to human testing, they tested it on 45 people. They had a high dose group of 15 people, a medium dose group of 15 people, and a low dose group of 15 people. In the low dose group, one of the people got so sick from the vaccine they had to be hospitalized. That's 6%. In the high dose group, three people got so sick they had to be hospitalized. That's 20%. Mm -hmm. They're going ahead and making 2 billion doses of that vaccine. And by the way, the people that they test them on, Alan, are not typical Americans. They use what they call exclusionary criteria. They are only giving these vaccines in these tests that they're doing to the healthiest people. If you look at their exclusionary criteria, you cannot be pregnant. You cannot be overweight. You must have never smoked a cigarette. You must have never vaped. You must have no respiratory problems in your family. You can't suffer asthma. You can't have diabetes. You can't have um, rheumatoid arthritis or auto, any autoimmune disease. There has to be no history of seizure in your family. These are the people they're testing the vaccine on, but that's not who they're going to give them to. Mm -hmm. They're going to go, what happens? These people are like the Avengers. They're like Superman. You can shoot them with a bullet and they won't go down. But what happens when they give them to the typical American, you know, Sally Sixpack and Joe Bag of Donuts, who's 50 pounds overweight and has diabetes? What is, you know, what is going to happen then? You're not going to see 20%. You're going to see a lot of people dropping dead. These people lost consciousness. They had to go to hospital. They had huge fevers. And they're the healthiest people in the world. So any other medicine, Alan, that had that kind of profile in its original phase one study would be DOA. The problem is... Anthony Fauci put $500 million of our dollars into that vaccine. He owns half the patent. He has five guys who are working for him who are entitled to collect royalties from that. So you have a corrupt 
system. And now they've got a vaccine that is too big to fail. And instead of saying, hey, this was a terrible, terrible mistake, they're saying, we are going to order 2 billion doses of this. And, and you've got to understand, Alan, with these COVID vaccines, these companies are playing with house money. They're not spending anything on it, and they have no liability. So if they kill 20 people or 200 people or 2,000 people in their clinical trials, big deal. They have zero liability. And guess what? They've wasted money here their money because we're giving them the money to play with. Oh, so, you know, people like me and people in our community are looking at this process and we're saying, oh, you know, whatever comes out of that process, we don't want to take it because we're seeing how the sausage gets made. And it's really sickening. No medical product in the world would be able to go forward with the profile that Moderna has. So, let, let me just <clears throat> respond because I think we're <clears throat> coming to some common ground here. Uh, I have no doubt that transparency and testing is essential. Uh, I don't understand why there isn't a placebo testing and other testing later uh, after the initial vaccine. So there are many phases in a vaccine. We have an emergency now, and we may have to, in fact, develop a vaccine and make it available to people without placebo testing, without diversity testing. We may have to do that, but there's no reason why over time we can't do the traditional testing, say with polio or smallpox that are now part of our history uh, and have now existed for so many years. Obviously, at this point, there's no reason not to be able to do the placebo and the other kinds of human testing. Uh, the article in the Times that I referred to made a very interesting point. It said that the people who are most vulnerable to the disease are the people who probably won't be part of the original testing. The testing is, as you said, done mostly on people who are quite healthy. Um, but isn't there a natural test that occurs? You say the pharmaceutical injury has nothing to lose, but look at what happened to the pharmaceutical companies that put forward some of the opiates. They have been driven out of business. Their names have been taken off buildings. Uh, they are regarded as pariahs in the world today. Certainly anybody who runs a pharmaceutical company cares deeply about not killing people. And even if the government doesn't mandate this kind of testing, and even if they give them exemption from financial liability, surely good people. And I think we assume that people who run companies today, I have a friend who's trying to develop one of the, the vaccines and, and he's doing it without profit. He feels so strongly about the need to uh, uh, vaccinate people around the world. So I think you overstate it when you say that the people who are developing these vaccines have no concern whatsoever whether people live or die. I think they do have a concern. I, I think the government has eliminated their financial liability. But uh, w would, you, would you be sat? And the other thing is, you say there's no testing. I, I'm not the expert, I'm not the medical journal reader, but I've read enough medical journals to know that there is a lot of natural testing. You cite some of it. You cite some of the arguments that say that over years, people get autism, people get this, people get that. Those results don't come from the initial testing that allowed the product to go forward. They come from great universities, medical schools, and public health institutions that continue to test products 
over time and report to the public the results of those products. Uh, Robert, uh, here, here's, the, here's the answer. You raise a bunch of questions. One is the opiate people got busted, Alan, and, and by the way, no, they were not moral people. They knew what they were doing. They're killing uh, 56,000 American young kids a year, knowing what they were doing. Or kids every year that were killed in the 20-year Vietnam War. These are not moral companies. And they only got busted because plaintiff's attorneys could sue them. I agree. They, and they got the, the, the discovery documents and walked them down to the U.S. Attorney's Office and said, hey, there's criminal behavior here. That can never happen in the vaccine space. You can't sue them. There's no discovery. There's no depositions. There's no class action suit. There's no multi-district on district litigation, there's no interrogatories, nothing. They never get caught. Now, these four companies that make all of our vaccines, all 72 of the vaccine shots that are now mandated for our children, every one of them is a convicted serial felon. Axo, Sanofi, Pfizer, Merck. In the past 10 years, just in the last decade, those companies have paid $35 billion in criminal penalties, damages, Lines are lying to doctors for defrauding science, for falsifying science, for killing hundreds of thousands of Americans knowingly and getting away with it. Viox, which was Merck's biggest vaccine producer, Viox, which was their flagship product in 2007, was a pill that they marketed as a headache pill that caused heart attacks. They knew it caused heart attacks because they saw them in the signals in their clinical trials. They didn't tell the American public. And they killed between 120,000 and 500,000 Americans who did not need to die. And most of those Americans were people who had rheumatoid arthritis or they had headaches and migraines. They took that bill, that pill leaving and, and by the way when we sued them we got spreadsheets from their bean counters where they said we're going to kill all these people we're still going to make a profit so let's go ahead nobody, and nobody, can, just, nobody can justify that i agree with right. you completely. and nobody they can. ended up they, they should have all gone to prison and said they spent they paid a seven billion dollar fine but how can anybody it requires a cognitive dissonance are people who understand the corporate, called the criminal corporate cultures of these four companies, to believe that they're doing this in every other product that they are, that they have, but they're not doing it with vaccines. They are. Look, and, and I just want to answer your other question. No, sure. placebo testing does not take place after the clinical trials, and the reason for that is HHS has adopted a very unethical guidance that says it is unethical once a vaccine is licensed, recommended, it is unethical to do placebo trials or compare vaccinated versus unvaccinated people. There are scientists who do it, but they're punished for it. There, it's very difficult for them to publish. They get their uh, their funding cut off because nobody wants any study that is going to reveal the truth about vaccine injuries. So it just does not happen. Look, it's very important that you're making these points because we live in a democracy, and nobody is going to compel a vaccine 
unless you get democratic approval. Legislatures are going to have to pass laws doing that. And you should testify about this. Your, your voice should be heard. But in the end, how do you respond when the American public has listened to you, has listened to your argument, and they're very persuasive, and they're very convincing, and they have an impact on people like me with open minds, uh, and yet, in the end, there's a vote by the legislature, and the legislature votes to compel vaccinations in the public interest, just the way the legislature votes to draft young people to fight wars in which they will die. Um, in a democracy, don't you have to follow the will of the majority? I agree. Transparency is all important. And, and, and let's shift the debate, because you said you wanted to answer the question. Let's take it out of vaccine for one second, because I think it helps analytically. I'm a law professor for 50 years, so I always do hypotheticals, hypos. So let's assume the legislature now passes a law every 50 states and the United States Congress passes a law requiring everybody to wear a mask when they're outdoors. And you say, well, I'm not so sure that masks are helpful. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. Congress has hearings. Congress makes a determination that on balance they are helpful. Wouldn't you agree that it would be constitutional? Let's start with constitutional and then desirable. Wouldn't you agree that it would be constitutional to mandate the wearing of masks, even if people have political, ideological, medical, religious objections, because A, the wearing of the mask is only an inconvenience. Maybe it'll cause a little irritation by some people that will require, you know, a topical uh, pharmaceutical. Uh, and it has the potential not to save the world, but to improve the possibility of not having communicable diseases. Wouldn't you agree that mandatory mask wearing would be constitutional? Well, if I accepted all of your precedents, then perhaps I would. The thing is, I know a lot about the mass, and my organization, CHD, has not taken a position on, on them. But I have read, um, well, I've read at least three meta-reviews involving hundreds of studies on mass. And the majority of the studies, in fact, there's a BMJ study from 2015 that says that mass actually likely to spread the disease and to make you less healthy because the carbon dioxide that you're breathing and that the people who wear the mask are more likely to get sick. I'm not saying that that's my position. I'm just saying yeah. there's a lot of contrary science out there. Do you, do you wear a mask personally when you science, go out? If the, if the science was clear, if the science was clear, then I'd be much more sympathetic to your view. Let me ask you this. Let me just answer the other question you had. You said we have to rely on the majority. Well, I grew up in the state of Virginia, Alan. When I grew up, it was illegal because the majority voted. It was illegal for a black man to marry a white woman. I it, was agree. it was illegal it was for blacks to vote. So the majority is not, no, in a democracy, you have the courts there that protect our I rights. Agree. Off I agree. Against I agree. Majority. Um, and unfortunately, we are in a situation today where we have tremendous corruption, not only in Congress, which is receiving, which receives more money from pharmaceutical companies than any other industry. Pharmaceutical gives in lobbying, 
twice the amount that oil and gas, which is the next big one, four times what defense and aerospace. There are more lobbyists, pharma lobbyists in Congress than there are members of Congress in the Senate. So anyway, we have lost the, um, you know, the legislative independence of that body. And the, unfortunately, Alan, the, the agencies are also captured. Now, you know about agency capture. It happens everywhere. And I've sued EPA my entire life. We just um, sued the, the uh, EPA. We just sued Monsanto. We got an historic judgment, a $12 billion settlement in the Monsanto case. And I was part of that trial team. And one of the things that happened during that trial is that EPA took a position against us. They took a position that, that uh, glyphosate does not cause, Roundup does not cause cancer. As it turns out, we got an internal memorandum that showed that the head of the pesticide division in EPA was actually working secretly for Monsanto and killing studies and twisting studies and ghostwriting studies to falsify the science. Look, you're doing we great. Were to, we, we were able to show that to the jury. Now, imagine this. That's EPA, which is an independent agency. Imagine this. FDA has 50% of its budget from vaccine companies, from the industry. 50%. The CDC has an $11.5 billion budget, and $4.9 billion of that is buying and selling and distributing vaccines. CDC is a vaccine company. It owns 57 vaccine patents, so it can make money on every sale of a vaccine. NIH owns hundreds of vaccines patents. NIH owns half the patent for the Moderna vaccine. There's five individuals at NIH, and the rules at NIH, if you're a scientist or an official who worked on a vaccine, you're allowed to collect $150,000 a year in royalties on sales that that vaccine makes. These regulatory agencies are actually vaccine companies. The, the vaccine marketing sales part of those agencies is the tail that is now wagging the regulatory dog. They are not doing their job as regulators. And in fact, the senior scientists at CDC today, the senior vaccine safety scientist, who's been, in fact, he's still at, at CDC, he was the senior scientist there for 18 years. He is the author or co-author on all of the major studies that CDC has produced on vaccine safety, and particularly the studies that show the vaccine does not cause autism. His name is Dr. William Thompson. Three years ago, he came forward and he said, uh, we have been ordered to fake all the science of the last decade on autism. And, and, he, and he said, in fact, we were in the, the major study, which is called the 2004, it's the most cited study on this subject and he, on PubMed. And he said, in that study, we found out that black boys who get the MMR vaccine had a 363% greater risk of getting an autism diagnosis than black boys who waited after 36 months. Right. He said he was ordered to come into a conference room with all that data, with his four other co-authors by their CDC boss, Frank DiStefano, who then ordered them to destroy that data in front of them 
in CDC headquarters and then published that study saying there is no effect. So you have an agency that is really just an arm of industry and the people who are in my community who are being derided and vilified, these mothers who have vaccine-injured children, are being vilified in the press, who are saying, wait a minute, we have read the studies, the scientific studies. We have read about the industry corruption. We need to talk about this. They're being silenced by the press. They're not allowed to tell their stories, and nobody is talking. Not a single member of Anderson Cooper's staff or Sanjay Cooper has made any effort to talk to Bill Thompson, and he has been begging to be subpoenaed, and he's still at CDC. Mm -hmm. Look, the reason I do this debate is because I think you perform an important function by bringing out some of these ties, some of these connections. You perform an important function when you bring lawsuits against corrupt pharmaceutical companies. But my question is this, knowing all that you know now, and putting aside the issue of let's assume we didn't have mandatory vaccinations, let's assume you win that debate, and it's only voluntary vaccinations now, and they come forward with a vaccine that they say will stem the tide of the pandemic, and you're allowed to go on television on Anderson Cooper, would you urge all the American people not to take the vaccine? Would you become part of the campaign not to take the vaccine oh. if it were voluntary? I'm plain oh, I, not you know, look, I don't okay. know. I'm not anti-vaccine. People call me the anti-vaccine because of the way I'm marginalizing me and silencing me and saying, that's oh, why I'm asking, That's why I'm asking you the question. I'm not anti-vaccine. You know, look, Alan, I've been trying to get mercury out of fish for 37 years, nobody calls me any fish. I, you. I, I support I you on that 100%. But what would you do? But, but, let me just say television, What would you tell the American public if a vaccine were available and if you were invited, say, to speak to members of the black community, members <laughs> of the Latino community, members of the general uh, American community, and they said, the vaccine, well, listen, your, but, if the vaccine... If they come out with the vaccine, yeah. it does what Bill Gates says it's going to do, which is you give one shot, you get lifetime immunity, and there are vanishingly rare serious injuries. So I don't mind, you know, jab site, redness, no. itching, forget about it. I don't care. I'm talking about deaths or brain damage, one in a million, that may be acceptable. In that case, and, and it works, and I'd say, I'm, I tell people, yeah, I'm going to get it. Let's go ahead and get it. What if it was but, one in a thousand, not one in a million? That's more one in a thousand. No, of course not. I'm not going to tell one in a thousand people to die so that 999 people can, get, can avoid COVID, particularly since the case fatality rate for COVID, I mean, a, a healthy person has basically zero chance of dying from COVID. Oh, they, you know, you need to give it to a tremendous number of people to save one life. And and we and the problem is with this vaccine is we don't know if the vaccine is going to kill more people when you start giving it to those people with the comorbidities. Fifty four percent of Americans now has diabetes, overweight, rheumatoid arthritis. They're smokers. They have fifty four percent of us. I'm not even talking about smokers and vapors. 
54% of us has chronic disease. They're, they're testing it on one group and they're going to give it to another. And we need to know what the risk factor is in the people that they give it to. And I, I agree with that. Let me put you in. Let me just say the complete thought I was going to be made before. You know, I've sued the EPA for many years and it's a captive agency. What would happen if EPA made half of its annual budget selling coal? Mm-hmm. That's what you got with these regulatory agencies. Well, They're completely corrupt. An important function doing this. Let me ask you another question. What if we had a system which said this? You have two choices. One, you can have the vaccine. Or two, you can refuse to take the vaccine. But if you refuse to take the vaccine, you have to remain in quarantine until such time as the pandemic is basically passed. So it's your option. The one option you don't have, you don't have the third option. That is not taking the vaccine and mingling with the public and risking other people getting COVID. Not only uh, young people, although young people do die, the Broadway actor who had his leg amputated and recently died tragically without any pre-existing conditions. What if we gave people that option? Quarantine is the option for refusing to accept the vaccine, but you don't have the third option of refusing to accept the vaccine and walking around the public without masks. The problem is, you know, that sounds like a reasonable position. The problem is, it's not the world the way the world works. And and let me explain why. Here's how the world works. And the best analogy is is the flu vaccine. So a flu vaccine is very much like the coronavirus vaccine, but we've had the flu vaccine for 90 years. So every year it's fine-tuned and, we, and, and perfected. And originally they told us the flu vaccine, you'll get one shot and you'll have immunity for life. And then it turned out, no, we, we need to get it every year. Because so this- there are variations of the flu. And the same thing is highly likely to happen with coronavirus. Now, the Cochrane collaboration, which is the ultimate arbiter for vaccine safety, it is, you know, it, it is the highest authority. And the British Medical Journal have done three giant meta-reviews on, on, on the flu vaccine literature. So they look at all the literature that exists, the peer-reviewed literature that is on PubMed. I think 127 studies. They did it in 2010, 2014, and 2017. Here's what they found. CDC said the flu vaccine is 35% effective. That's what they claim. Cochrane Collaboration said no. You have to give 100 flu shots to prevent one case of flu, number one. Number two, there is zero evidence that the flu shot prevents any hospitalizations or any deaths. Number three, the flu shot transmits the flu. In fact, if you get a flu shot, you're six times more likely to give somebody else the flu than if you didn't get the flu shot. And this is true, Alan, for many, many other uh, shots. For example, the polio polio vaccine, which you know about, is so good at transmitting, giving polio to other people that 70% of the polio cases in the world today come from the vaccine. So let me ask you a specific question. And the chicken pox, if you go to the chicken pox um, manufacturer's insert, 
it says if you get this chicken pox vaccine, you should not go near a pregnant woman for six weeks or anybody with who is immunocompromised. Same with, same with pertussis. You become an asymptomatic carrier. So it's a, you're not guaranteeing. And in fact, the, the, uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine, the Oxford vaccine, which is the, the other leader, when they gave it to monkeys, the monkeys continued to transmit the disease. And Bill Gates and Fauci have been going on TV saying, you know, we may get a, a vaccine that protects you, but it, you may still be transmitting it. So why are you going to lock that guy up in a house? Look, and I, all I, people out who, who've been, who are now asymptomatic carriers because they got Gates' vaccine. Let me agree with you, first of all. If they develop a vaccine that only prevents you from getting it, but doesn't prevent you from transmitting it, I would not be in favor of uh, compelling that vaccine. And I think the Supreme Court would not accept that as a rationale. But I want to ask you a direct question. I'm 81, I'm almost 82 years old. My doctor, who I love and admire, says to me every year, come October, you must get the flu vaccine. You must get the vaccine against pneumonia. Uh, you must get the vaccine, whatever it is, against shingles. I listen to my doctor, who I love and admire, and has been taking care of me for years. Should I instead listen to you and not take the flu vaccine? Nobody should listen to me. People need to do the science themselves. And I would say to you, no, listen to your doctor. What Reagan said about, uh, about Gorbachev, trust but verify. Do look at the vaccine inserts, Alan. Yeah. Look at some of the science. And I would say, you know, my I in a million years, I would not take the flu shot. And I'll tell you why, because this is what Cochrane and BMJ have found. People who take the flu shot are protected against that strain of flu. Uh, they're 4.4 times more likely to get a non-flu infection. And you might find, and a lot of people do, that they get the flu shot and then they get sick. They're usually not getting the flu. They're getting something that is indistinguishable from the flu because the flu shot gives you something called pathogenic priming. It, it, it injures your immune system so that you're more likely to get a non-flu viral upper respiratory infection. In fact, the Pentagon published a story, and you can cite this, it's by Wolf, W-O-L-F-E, in January of this year, in which they said that the flu shot not only primes you for flu, but it primes you for coronavirus. If you get, they gave flu, they had a placebo group, and they had a vaccine group because they wanted for many military readiness to see if the flu shot was prophylactic against coronavirus. What they found is actually the people who got the flu shot were 36% more likely to get coronavirus. And that's not a, that's not a lone study. We found six other major studies that say the same thing. If you get the flu shot, you're more likely to get coronavirus. And this is what the science says, and you should not listen to me. Nobody no, should. I understand. You the science. So let me understand the implications of your position on the flu shot. Uh, not only uh, would you not take the flu shot and urge me to look at the science and in the end decide not to take the flu shot because it's too dangerous, but you would also, if I take the implications of your position accurately, outlaw the flu shot, make it illegal because in your view and in the view of the scientists you quote, 
the flu shot causes more harm than good and, and increases the chances of us all getting the coronavirus. Do I understand the implications of your view correctly? Yeah, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't take um, that sort of extreme position. What I would say is we should have vaccines, but it's, we shouldn't have one size fits all mandates. There may be some situations where even a flu shot would be beneficial to somebody because a flu shot is not completely ineffective. It, it does probably give you protection against that year's flu strain if they get it right. And there could be a situation where somebody's life depended on getting that flu shot, but to mandate the flu shot population-wide, I think is criminal. And I think it's, you know, where the look, all you have to do, Alan, and this is what Cochran said, is look what's happened to longevity in the elderly since we started mandating the flu shot to elderly people. Those are the people, who, their, their life expectancy has dramatically gone down as the flu shot proliferated. And if you see, you know, the people who died during the COVID vaccine, during the COVID crisis, many, and there's no science on this, but it's observational, it tended to be people who got their flu shots, people who were in nursing home who all get flu shots, people who are first responders who get so flu shots. So with all due respect, I don't understand the implications of your position. If, if you're right, why wouldn't it follow that the flu shot should be illegal? You said it's criminal to mandate the flu shot because it kills people in my age category. So if you had to cast the deciding vote, if you had decided to run for Congress instead of doing the great work you've done over so many years, and you were the deciding vote in the United States Senate, and there was a bill to outlaw the flu shot, wouldn't, why wouldn't you vote for it? If you, you know, think I'm, kind of, I'm, like, I'm, I'm kind of a free market guy, and I think, you know, what I'm against mandates. I think okay. that, you know, there may be situations where, you know, that, where that product might do some good for somebody, but I don't, I just don't believe it should be mandated. I don't, you know, I wouldn't think, for example, that a, um, that uh, Viagra should be mandated to every human being on the planet, right? But there may be somebody who says, you know, I want to take that medication, let them do it. Order everybody to do it. Look, you're, we, you and I are on the same page there. I'm curious what you think of this because I feel very strongly about this. Let's assume you have a drug, a pharmaceutical, that hasn't been tested, that is potentially dangerous, but has a 10% chance of curing pancreatic cancer in terminally ill patients. Do you agree with me and with President Trump on this issue that individuals who are dying should have the opportunity to go off-label and to take dangerous drugs that probably will kill them, but increase the chances that they remain alive. That that should be a matter of individual choice. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a, a, I have a big libertarian streak in me. I think sure. people should be left to their own choices wherever possible, unless it's going to do some harm to others. Let me address one, just one last thing that we you were talking with that. about. We both agree with John. Yeah, I think. I, I think we agree on most stuff. The, you know, you said, well, if it's tested against a placebo, and this, I think, is why people like me are suspicious, are reticent. Um, the Oxford vaccine, 
which is, you know, was the, is the other leader. Gates has a huge investment in it. Fauci is pushing it. It is the leader. AstraZeneca is now, you know, is branding it. That vaccine is run by a guy called Greg Pollard, who is at Oxford, a very, very famous, powerful uh, virologist. He originally promised at the beginning, he said, we're going to test it against the placebo. We're going to do what's never been done in vaccinology before. We're going to actually use an inert placebo and test it. Mm-hmm. And then in the middle of his phase two, he said, no, we're going to test it against the meningitis vaccine. The meningitis vaccine is a vaccine with a really high injury profile. It has a listed just on its manufacturing insert are 50 deadly serious injuries, including Kawasaki disease, um, Guillain-Barre, paralysis, seizure, heart attacks, and death, and and hepatitis, and all kinds of autoimmune disease. It's probably, it's arguably the most dangerous vaccine. So instead of giving his placebo group an inert placebo, he's giving them the most dangerous vaccine he can. Why? It's a ploy that vaccinologists use. And they give their placebo group something that's horrendously dangerous to mask injuries in the vaccine. And, you know, and so everybody on my side sees this and they say, he's not being honest. We do not know what the risk profile of that product is. We are never going to take that product because it was never tested against a placebo. Make Mm -hmm. them do the science. Don't say to, you know, get angry at people who are skeptical and say, oh, you're skeptical. We're watching the sausage get made, and it's an ugly process. And by the way, he gave that vaccine to a bunch of monkeys, you know, macaques. And then then he exposed, he challenged the macaques by exposing them to the wild coronavirus. Yeah, yeah. And all of the macaques got sick. So the vaccine doesn't work, but because the British government put 90,000 pounds into it, he now is in order to make 2 million doses with a vaccine we know doesn't work, and they're going forward with it anyway, and he refuses to test it against the placebo. So that gives us zero faith in the whole process. So let, let me, first of all, say nobody should be angry at you. People should be praising you for bringing this to the attention of the American public. Let me just summarize, if I can, my view, and then you can get the last word. Uh, I am thrilled that we had this debate. I think the public watching the debate has learned. Uh, we've learned how much we agree about. We're both libertarians. We both agree with John Stuart Mill that the government shouldn't be compelling you to do anything just for your own good, but they can compel you to do things that prevent harm to others. Uh, we have some disagreements about uh, um, mandates. Uh, I think we both agree that any vaccine should start out by being offered voluntarily. We both agree that people should um, be offered the vaccine initially and take it on a voluntary basis. And that mandatory vaccination, which presents very daunting moral and constitutional issues, should not be required until it's proved absolutely necessary by the consensus of medical opinion. Um, I think we also agree that the First Amendment and the spirit of the First Amendment requires that this debate continue. And so I'm pleased that we had this debate. Uh, You've persuaded me about some of the medical issues. I will look further into medical issues. 
I don't think I persuaded you on the constitutional issues, and I know you haven't persuaded me on the constitutional issues. I still take the position, although in a democracy, the courts do have the final word, that I do believe that if there were legislation mandating in extreme circumstances with safety and other considerations taken into account, um, mandatory vaccination, I do believe the Supreme Court would and should uh, uphold mandatory vaccination under those circumstances. That's the major area we disagree with. But in practical terms, I suspect we don't have a lot of disagreement that will come to fruition in the next year or so, because in the next year, the big issue will be how to get the vaccine voluntarily to as many people as possible who are willing to take it. And so thank you for putting together this debate. I think it really was informative. And thank you, Robert, for uh, accepting the uh, idea of debating on this issue. Thank you, Alan. And I, I, I want to express my gratitude to you on behalf of myself and everybody in this community. You know, people who are, who are called anti-vax, they're mainly not anti-vaccine. Almost all of them are the mothers and fathers of intellectually disabled kids who gave all the vaccines, who did what they were told, and then their child was injured, and, they, and that prompted them to go out and do the research. Those people should be allowed to speak. Those people should not be gagged. They should not be okay. shut up. They should not be considered heretics. They should be allowed to tell their story, and they should be treated with compassion and understanding and patience and an intellectual openness toward their stories. They shouldn't be vilified. They shouldn't be gaslighted. They shouldn't be ignored. And right now, particularly at a point in our history where we're talking about giving lots of people this vaccine, their stories are more important to hear than ever. I want to thank you, as for 15 years, all of us have been trying to do a debate. And we haven't been able to get Peter Hotez to do it. We haven't been able to get Paul Offit, Ian Lipkin, any of the leaders have been, have been scared to sit where you are now. And I want to thank you so much on behalf of all of us, but also our democratic traditions for coming here. Thank you, Alan. Well, thank you, Robert. Gentlemen, one thing I do want to say is I'm glad I got through my 28 questions with you guys. It was uh, very good. And uh, I know one thing is uh, we have to make this disclaimer that this, this uh, debate is not sponsored by Viagra, even though Robert <laughs> brought up Viagra. And I'll make sure next time we're in uh, Boston, I avoid taking you to my favorite sushi spot since you are anti-fish. I had no clue until today's debate that Robert is anti-fish. Uh, and by the way, based on how this goes, if the audience comes back, we may reach out to you for part two again. If there's other topics, we can uh, touch up. Happy ahead with this. Happy Alan, thank you so much for your time. Robert, thank you so much for your time. Take care, everybody. Appreciate you guys. Thank you. Thank you very much, Patrick. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bid-David. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.